Evidence and Answers. What makes Christ's resurrection so extraordinary? What evidence do we have that sets this event apart from other such miraculous accounts? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat Zucran will be interviewing a frequent guest on the show, Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Habermas has written numerous books and is a sought-after speaker and expert in the defense of the resurrection of Christ. The discussion at hand is about the uniqueness of the resurrection— What evidences do we have? And what makes Christ's resurrection so extraordinary? Without delay, here's Pat along with Dr. Gary Habermas. Uh, Dr. Habermas, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be with you once again. Well, Dr. Habermas, we're talking about the uniqueness of Christ. And when we talk about the life of Jesus, we've got to first build a case for the historical reliability of the Gospels. Now, you've developed a particular methodology for defending the historical reliability of the Gospels. Why don't you explain to us your methodology? Yeah, Pat, that's a, that's a good way to start because, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many guys. In fact, I just made a comment recently in a, on a uh, dialogue I have to have with the fellow that, that uh, too many people just start talking and don't take time to set forth their, their I'll call them presuppositions if you want, methods. And uh, I'll tell you real quickly, I think the traditional path works. And the traditional path being what I might call a kind of a top-down kind of Here's 10 different ways to show the Bible's reliable manuscript evidence, uh, or early texts, manuscript reliability, archaeology, extra-biblical sources. And from that, we conclude that the text is, is reliable everywhere we can test it. And so, therefore, we, we say we have good reason to think that where we can't test it, uh, you know, it, it, it'll still come out looking, looking good. And uh, I, I think that, that approach can work. I think we can make it work, and I... I when I teach apologetics, I still do that path. But I've been working in recent years with another uh, method, which I call the minimal facts method, and it's kind of a, the opposite. It, it moves from the bottom up. And, and instead of kind of get this general kind of all the manuscripts look good and they're all early and everything we've got looks like it's, like it's a trustworthy text, this, this other method says, hey, look, there are several kinds of rules that we can apply to the biblical text. Now, this especially applies to the Gospels, but, but there are several rules we can apply, and whenever a text meets one, two, three of these criteria, we know that we're on fairly good grounds, and, and we can say with confidence that, that this, is, this text is worth studying. And then when you have a number of texts uh, that are evidenced in that manner, you can kind of put them together and say, oh, well, look what we have here. We've got this doctrine or that doctrine. And when you do this in the New Testament, for example, you might, rule, you might use rules like this. Um, for example, uh, early testimony, early data is obviously better than data that's later. And, and there's early and late data in the New Testament. For example, the Gospel of John is at one end of the spectrum, according to uh, all New Testament scholars, and Paul is at the other end, according to all New Testament scholars. So early is good. That doesn't mean there's a problem with John. John is still good. Uh, in terms of ancient historiography, but Paul just really gets us out of the uh, you know out of the gate real quickly. So early is good. Secondly, eyewitness testimony is good, and whenever ever you can show that you have eyewitness data, you're you're onto something. Um, a third kind of approach is one that says, "Hey, what about uh, embarrassing testimony? What if we have passages 
that it would be really embarrassing for the New Testament writers to, to record unless it's actually true. For example, how come every time Jesus says something about going to Jerusalem and dying and <clears throat> rising from the dead, the disciples, Peter in particular, who's going to be the, the, you know, the leader in the early church, here's this leader jumping up on a soapbox saying, oh, absolutely not, you're not going to die, that's not going to happen, I'll protect you with my life. And, of course, we know what happens. Um, he doesn't, and, and, and he's, not, he's not there when Jesus goes to the cross. So that's pretty embarrassing. Um, enemy attestation is another good point. When, when enemies agree that something's the case, and, and this, for example, allows us to make some good comments about Jesus' miracles, that even his enemies, rather than saying, hey, you're a magician, this doesn't work, you're not pulling this off, this is sleight of hand, this is illusion, they're saying, you must be doing that by Satan's power. And by doing by by saying that, of course, they're conceding the miracle. So these are some these are some things that uh, if we can if we can list these. Another example, by the way, of embarrassment is that the women are not only the earliest uh, witnesses to the empty tomb; they're the first ones to see Jesus. They're the only ones at the cross, except for uh, John. So once you start getting these kind of uh, data that are individually attested, that's the key to the second method individually attested data. And you can start looking at doctrines like the deity of Christ or perhaps Jesus' miracles or the resurrection, and maybe we can have two paths here to reliability. One's the general top-down, and the other one's the, I'll only use these certain passages that I can uh, individually investigate. So how does your methodology apply in defending the deity of Christ? Well, well you picked a go in there, because I, I think... I think if we uh, let the New Testament speak for itself, every time the New Testament gives us a, a, a um, definition of the gospel, uh, I'm not saying we should never mention more than these three, but at least three things are always present, three doctrines. And that's the deity of Christ, his death, and his bodily resurrection. They're always present. And so, you know, to talk about the deity of Christ, we're getting pretty close to the center of, of uh, the message here. And, and I would make a case that says, well, look, um, <clears throat> I could, I could use a passage, for example, Mark 13, 32, which calls Jesus the Son, Jesus speaking. And he says, the day or time of my coming, no one knows, not even the angels, not even the Son, but the Father only. Now, that is what a theologian would call an embarrassing text, because in the very same text where Jesus says, I'm the Son, he says, I don't know something, which kind of begs the question, well, if you're the Son of God, how come you don't know something? And... Uh, you know, if you're a biblical writer and you want to say Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, just just say he claimed to be the Son of God. Don't say he's the Son of God and there's something he doesn't know. That's too complicated. And so being that complicated, it's probably true. Another passage like that is Mark 14.36, where Jesus call, refers to God as Abba. Now, the fact that that word is in the Aramaic is an indication that's very early. The uh, so-called Aramisms, the Aramaic terms in the Gospels are generally taken to be very early. What you get there is kind of a, a showcase on the actual words of Jesus. If I could only pick one verse, one text, scripture, on the deity of Christ, I would take uh, Mark fourteen sixty-one to 64. And here the high priest says to Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the, the Blessed One? Now, notice, if, if I'm arguing from the bottom up, if I'm arguing for individual texts, notice there's a sign that this is an early Jewish saying, because like a good Jewish theologian, the high priest does not say, are you the Christ, the Son of God? That's the way the Christian would ask the question. But he says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now that's a, that's a sign that we have a, 
that we could very well have a, an early question, a, a early question, an early saying here. Besides, we do need a reason for why Jesus died. And so, when Jesus said, "He said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God?" Jesus says, "Ego on me." In the Greek, I am. And henceforth, you'll see the Son of Man. And here he, he talks about a Son of Man verse, and the high priest says, you've committed blasphemy. And we go back and look at that text. It's not, I don't think, primarily because he said, ego of me, I am. It's primarily because he claimed to be able to occupy God's throne. You will see the Son of Man coming seated on the right hand of God. And we know the rest of the story. They killed him. So I think when we look at individual texts, like that, we can we can get to the deity of Christ, and to me, those are exciting conclusions. Yeah, they are. And, and Dr. Habermas, um, I like your minimal facts approach, and I think that that's something that we ought to all get down because uh, it really gets people going and out of the gate. But I, I wonder if you could give us a couple of nuggets here, sure. uh, because people will say something like, "Well, you got to have a whole lot of manuscripts in order for me to believe it." And uh, 25,000 or whatever, I, I don't believe, you know, how do I know that's right? I will say, well, then you don't believe Homer's Iliad because he only had 643. And that gives them pause because they know that uh, Homer's Iliad is studied in the university. So give us a nugget as far as, well, I'm not going to believe the Gospels because they went down 20, 30, 40 years after the events. Well, if that's the case, then you don't believe what? Well, that, that's a great question. I would say, if you're not going to believe the Gospels, let's, let's just take Mark. If you're not going to believe Mark at plus 35 or plus 40 after the life of Jesus, why do we let Livy talk about the founding of Rome when he was, not only does he talk about Romulus and Remus being raised by a, a she-wolf, but he's talking about things on the, on the Tiber River, the beginning of this Roman civilization, that happened hundreds of years before his earliest sources. Or let's take something from the time of Jesus. <clears throat> what about Suetonius the, in his book, The Twelve Caesars, or Tacitus's 30 books of, of history? That's his total count, not, not 30 different titles. But, but when you take Tacitus and Suetonius, um, they're writing together about 112 to 120 A.D. They're from about the same time period. But what happens when they start talking about uh, Julius Caesar? Well, that's, that's over 100 years earlier. When I talk about Caesar Augustus, the same one who uh, decreed that the world should be taxed in the Gospel of Luke, well, again, they're over 100 years after that when they're writing, or right about the 100, actually more than 100 years at that point. So, so if you you're going to penalize the New Testament, then you're going to have to penalize these guys, too. Absolutely. And by the way, I'll take this, this uh, nugget question one step further. Somebody's going to step in there and say, yeah, but look, look what you're doing. You are applying Roman historians to religious propaganda. And I'll say, well, okay, so what makes the Gospels religious propaganda? Well, they record miracles. Therefore, they're religious books. And I'll say, hey, you know something? Go back and read Greco-Roman historians and tell me how many of them do not record miracles. Virtually every Greco-Roman historian, uh, go all the way back to Herodotus, the so-called father of history, they almost always uh, Thucydides is an exception, but there are very few exceptions. They record these miracles. Now the guy says, all right, all right, all right, now you got me going. So, so maybe we shouldn't pay attention to Greco-Roman histories, because they all listen to miracles. So why should we listen to the resurrection? I'll say, hey, well, look, number one, I've already taken you know, pains to tell you that the New Testament is closer to these events and has more criteria for uh, reliability than, than do these Roman books. But let me give you one more reason. None of the Roman miracles are evidenced 
in terms that we would accept, the kind of reasons that apologists give. Uh, we don't see that kind of data for the Roman miracles. So my principle would be the principle that most Christians use. Make sure you've got good data before you hang your life on it. And uh, there's just nothing like a resurrection. There's nothing even like the rest of Jesus' miracles. You know, Jesus is the only founder of a major world religion of whom we have miracles reported within a generation. Only one. Yeah, we were talking about miracles and how miracles authenticate the claims of Christ, but also that in other Greco-Roman historical works, there are miracle claims. And Gary, um, tell us once again, what makes the gospel accounts of the miracles different from the Greco-Roman miracle accounts? Well, I'll tell you what, let let me make it hard for myself before I jump in there. Knowing me, I mean, you guys know I would say, well, hey, let's talk about the resurrection, because I always tell my students, make them hit you at your hardest point. Let's punt to resurrection, because that's where most of our data is. But I'll make it hard for myself. I'll exclude resurrection from the discussion. I would have told you 20 years ago I could not do what I'm getting ready to do for you right now, and that's because the field of evidence has changed. The criteria are changed. And I would say if we use those rules I mentioned earlier, which is only accept accounts which are well attested and build from a bottom up with individual accounts, we have several reasons for accepting that Jesus is a miracle worker. And uh, some of the reasons, one of them I already gave, that the critics, the critics who lived and listened to Jesus, unbelievers who listened to him, did not say, you're not doing miracles. This is a joke. You're not really doing anything. We can do the same things. They're saying, well, yeah, you're doing these things, but whose power is this? You're doing it by Satan's power. Thereby uh, acknowledging his miracles. And that's what we called earlier. That's called enemy attestation. I can accept something. If you said to me, uh, hey, this Gary guy, uh, he's a bum. He's, he's this and that and this and that and this and that. But I will tell you one thing. He's got a good degree from the school, or he's got a good family behind him. Well, if, if you don't like anything else about me, chances are I've got a pretty good uh, degree or I've got a pretty good family behind me, if that's the only thing you're going to concede. And if they concede that Jesus is a miracle worker, um, you know, that's something about him that's, that's probably true, and it's there in the beginning. It's there in the accounts. In fact, several of the accounts, you have to adjust entire accounts if the miracle passage is not true. You have... You have problems, for example, explaining why there's such a large crowd, or on this occasion, we have to adjust more than just the, uh, the, miracle, uh, the miracle case. And another example of a miracle, uh, Mark 2, for, for uh, another instance, uh, Jesus heals a man, the, the man that, is, that comes through the, the roof, and uh, Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish leader said, that's blasphemy. No man forgive, for, can forgive sin. Of course, they're correct. But Jesus said, I say unto you, arise, take up your bed, and walk. But, but before he did that, he said the words, so that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say, take up your bed and walk. Now, the interesting thing about this phrase, Son of Man, is that Jesus uses it of himself more than he uses any other title. You say, well, that just means it's, the, it's, his most, it's his favorite title in the early church. But no epistle in the New Testament calls Jesus the Son of Man. And so scholars are pretty much agreed that Jesus used this title um, of himself. And it's in that Son of Man passage that he, he, uh, he heals this man. Still another reason for uh, the miracle accounts, like I said, is because Jesus is the only founder of a major religion of whom we have miracle accounts taught within a generation. And all four Gospels, interestingly enough, the latest Gospel, John, is the one that gives the least least miracles. So these are some of the reasons that today 
most critics will concede. Now, they'll argue with you about whether these are really, truly miracles uh, in what sense they are. But almost all critics today will admit that Jesus was a miracle worker. And they will at least, they are at least positive about two of the three kinds of miracles. Um, the healing miracles, the exorcisms, which they call miracles. And the only one that there's a lot of disagreement about is the nature miracles. But the other two categories, healing and uh, exorcisms, there's general agreement about. Now, this is critical. Uh, Non-evangelical scholarship today will concede that. Now, how about the miracle accounts in other religions, uh, such as Islam and Buddhism? Did they not come within a generation? Well, I mean, you know, you could ask people who, who specialize in that, but here's some interesting things, Pat. Um, you know, let, let's take uh, Hinduism. Uh, sorry, let's take Islam. Let's take one of our, uh, let's take one of the major monotheisms. If I understand correctly what I hear from, from studies on Islam, there is arguably not a single miracle account in the Quran. If you want to get uh, Muslim miracles, you go to the Hadith, the, the commentary on the Quran. But the Quran itself, it's arguable that there's not a single miracle claim there, that, that you know, there's more of this idea that prophets are self-attesting. Now, I had a guy tell me one time after a debate, I don't want to accept your evidence for the resurrection because then I have to accept Buddha's miracles. And my response was, why? The earliest, the earliest evidence for Buddha's miracles come three to five centuries after Buddha. He is two, three times longer than the Roman sources. Now, I'm holding a, a book in my hands, guys, uh, right now. It's a penguin classic called the Buddhist Scriptures, and it's uh, edited by a, a Buddhist scholar, Edward Conzi. And right at the beginning of this book, in the introduction, he says, let's compare Buddhism to Christianity for a minute. And he says, Christians have what they believe are the words of Jesus, then they have writings from Jesus' earliest followers, and then they have writings on the writings, and then they have commentary way down the line. He said, Buddhism does not have that. He said, Buddhism does not kick in there with the actual words of Buddha and his earliest disciples. We don't come on the scene for for uh, a couple, two, three, four hundred years later. And so this is a, a leading Buddhist scholar saying we don't have that kind of data. Yeah, growing up as a Buddhist, uh, you know, I know that's correct, what you're saying. And, yeah, also Islam, that's right on the dot. Uh, in fact, in the Quran, Muhammad refuses to do miracles when uh -huh. he is challenged. He just says, look at the Quran, and, and you're right. It's not until the Hadith, about 150 years later, we start seeing these miracle accounts. Well, what about non-Christian sources? Um, don't they also acknowledge that Jesus did some miracles, but they try to explain it some other way? Well, you know, we do have that. We have, uh, we have uh, approximately, depends on how you want to count these, we have about a dozen and a half sources for Jesus outside the New Testament. And yes, you're right, they do say that Jesus was a miracle worker or that Jesus did things that were believed to be miracles. The famous Josephus quote, of course, there's there's uh, argument about that, how much of it Josephus wrote and how much he didn't. But why would there be an issue with Josephus saying he was a doer of great works, or maybe the lesser, some people say that he was a doer of great works. Why would that be an issue when people decades earlier than Josephus are saying the same thing? I mean, Non-Christians from decades earlier than Josephus. Josephus, by the way, writes at the end of the first century. But of the dozen and a half sources we have for Jesus... We have probably um, more than a hundred things that we can learn uh, from <clears throat> uh, from the life of Jesus. Over a hundred different items. Uh, if you use Christian and non-Christian sources, if you use non-Christian sources alone, 
outside the New Testament, you have about four dozen uh, different aspects of the life, preaching, death, resurrection of Jesus. And critics don't share, uh, shy away from these things. They do mention uh, that Jesus is a miracle worker, even that Jesus was raised from the dead, even that Jesus was uh, uh, plenty. For example, the Roman uh, governor says that Christians gathered on a particular day before dawn and sang hymns to Christ as unto a God. So that's some pretty interesting attestation from non-Christian sources. Yeah, do we have any sources within a generation that actually try to refute the gospel accounts, that try to uh, falsify the miracles or uh, the events of Jesus' life? You know, the, the only one that's coming to mind is, of course, it's, uh, it's a, an event that's mentioned in, the, in Matthew 28, and it's also mentioned later in both Justin Martyr and Tertullian. And uh, I'm referring here to the, the view that... that um, <clears throat> that the early Jewish uh, leaders said the disciples stole the body of Jesus. And uh, interesting that virtually no critic will say that today, but we do have um, Justin Martyr about 150 and Tertullian about 200 saying that that was still being noised around the Mediterranean, that they still had to put up with that. They still had to answer that criticism. And, of course, one of the things they wanted to say was, uh, why would you willingly die for something you know to be false? People die for things that are false, but they don't die willingly for things that they know are false. They die for things that are false, but they think they're true. Liars like, make poor mortars. That's yeah. correct. That's a great. That's a great sentence. Um, and so that would apply to the the, the uh, disciples here. And, and like I said, almost no critic today will take that that view. But there's an example. There are very few criticisms. In fact, within a hundred years, that is the only one that's coming to my mind. Now, there is there is a Greek historian named Thales who talks about the darkness that's surrounding the the um, earth at the um, at least the Mediterranean world at the time of the crucifixion. And um, it see it seems that it's kind of hard to to get his point. He's kind of mixing what happened with his own view. But it seems like he's trying to give a naturalistic explanation. He's trying to say. Um, maybe this darkness came from an eclipse. And the writer, Julius Africanus, who records the incident, says it can't be an eclipse because it was the time of the full moon. So that, that's a, a, an interesting response. But Thales, that could be another example uh, with regard to the darkness. But those kind of comebacks from critics are very few and far between. Even some of the Gnostic books, which, are, which were uh, you know, called heresy, um, they will record, they, they will talk about Jesus being a miracle worker. Fantastic. You know, as we wrap up here, uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, uh, could you give us some resources, maybe some things that you've written on and, and a website possibly that you have that uh, Christians can go to for to get this kind of information? Yeah, sure. You know, presently I am having a website put up, so I don't have one to, to send you to, but in a couple of months, uh, GaryHabermas.com should be up. Uh, until then, Bill Craig has a good website, William Lane Craig, and I suggest you go there. As far as books, there's a lot of good books on historical Jesus. One that uh, I would suggest to listeners is a book called Jesus Under Fire, edited by Michael Wilkins and J.P. Moreland. That's published by Zondervan. I've got a book I think you referred to earlier called Historical Jesus. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. 
This concludes Pat's interview with Dr. Gary Habermas. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on at our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online for more Evidence and Answers.